Hey everyone, this is That Guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to that podcast in Hutch. Today we're going to talk about something that, if, if you think about it, is a very familiar sound of summer, uh, the sound of the cicada. And I've brought in my friend Greg Holmes, who I think has some fascinating stories about cicadas. He's spent a lot of time with cicadas. And in fact, he just shared with me recently that he was involved with a, a series that's broadcasting on Discovery Channel called The Mating Game. And I watched a little bit of it last night and watched the segment that he was involved with. Uh, and it's really fascinating. So we're going to talk about cicadas and uh, recording them and all sorts of things. Greg, thanks for coming on today. A pleasure. So tell me a little bit about well, first tell me how you became interested to the, in cicadas to the point that you record them and, and video them and spend a lot of time out in the field with them. Yeah, the power of pure obsession. Uh, when I was a kid, you know, you, you see things like that from your bicycle. You're on the sidewalks in Joplin, Missouri is where I was. And, and as they're molting, they're hanging from the trees, their wings are catching the street lights, and they're just, and the sound is there. It's kind of part of the soundtrack. And uh, flash forward to about uh, 2007, um, I was scouting locations to photograph a Union Pacific steam engine that was going to be through Kansas in a few days. And the rest stop at uh, around Paxico, Kansas on that hill uh, occurred to me as a great vantage point to see the train coming across what would literally be the amber waves of grain on the north side of I-70. So I'm up there looking. And there was a cicada singing in a tree next to me. And I could see it so well because that's a steep hill. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of see into the sides of trees as you go up. And I got some decent video of it. And I thought, oh, wow, the abdomen moves when it when it's singing. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Hadn't noticed that in a lot of years. So I put it on YouTube and didn't really think about it until I got a message from an entomologist saying, hey, cool, you got uh, Tobison prunosa singing. You know, that's a great video. And I thought, oh. Well, there are Latin names for these, of course, like dinosaurs and lizards and anything else. I, I wonder how many we have in Kansas, and I wonder what they're called. So um, I found a 1927 paper from KU from an entomologist named, uh, his last name was Beamer, uh, that was a study of Kansas cicadas. And I found there weren't really a lot of, of books uh, that dealt with them accurately. They're, they're very general. They give them names like Dog Day Cicada <laughs> for the most part. And a Dog Day Cicada in Illinois or Connecticut is different than a Dog Day Cicada in, in Kansas. That's the problem with common names. But anyway, so I just started paying attention. And, and the, the internet, of course, existed in 2007. So I joined a, uh, a Yahoo Cicada group uh -huh. uh, on which there were a number of entomologists. And, entomologists, and they... Um, uh, could tell me what something was that I'd seen. I, I'd upload a little bit of video or a picture, and they'd say, well, uh, that one was recently called uh, Tobison chloromera, but now it's Tobison Tobison. And they'd explain uh, taxonomy rules to me and uh, so forth. So um, I got my start, you know, documenting Kansas cicadas that way. So, and I, I think I want to explore, there are a lot of cicadas. I mean, here we we... We live here in central Kansas. We are used to probably a, a dominant species. Mm -hmm. um, but there, you've talked to me a little bit about this, and you go to different parts of the country. There's all sorts of different cicadas, and they look different, and they sound different. I was listening to some of your video. They all sound quite a bit different, too. Mm -hmm. um, what determines kind of where a cicada's home territory is? 
post trees, uh, the environment, uh, even across Kansas, the, the the trees and the environment can can influence us quite a bit. We have at least 35 species in Kansas, and down on the Ozark Plateau in the extreme southeast corner, uh, we have one called Neocicada hieroglyphica that lives mostly in post oaks, and that's that's a more lush environment than we have here. Well, that one kind of fades out. It, it goes a little bit across southern Kansas, but it certainly doesn't exist in the the, the dry climate of Hutchinson. Uh, whereas if you go out to southwest Kansas, there's one called the cactus dodger or Cacama valvada that lives on prickly pear cactus and yucca plants. Hmm. And uh, it's right down there in the corner. And um, so, yeah, different environments uh, determine what can live there. They're very specifically adapted. So in, in the, what is the what is the dominant uh, variety here, and what what is the tr- what tree do they prefer here? In Hutchinson, uh, Neotobison prunosus, and that's the one that. Uh, and I can't really make cicada sounds. I don't think anyone can, but it's kind of the ear ear. It's like that pulsating thing, uh-huh. um, and it's not very particular at all. Okay, you will see it singing on uh, telephone poles and. Uh, as well as a, a number of varieties of trees. And it likes suburbia. It likes the uh, scattered trees of tree-lined streets. Um, it, it actually is more prevalent in Hutchinson than were you to go out to Sand Hill State Park. Okay. And you know you have the, the prairie and then the, the edge of the forest there. So uh, the second most common one in Hutchinson would be Megatobison delbatus, which is bigger and uh, has a uh, a lot more white on it. It's called prunosity. It's kind of a waxy substance. And they are very fond of cottonwood trees locally, although they also are, are fairly general. And they typically kick in a little bit later than prunosis. Um, people ask me when they come up, and it's highly variable according to temperature. This is a very late year, mm-hmm. and they need to um, molt overnight. Um, and that doesn't work if it gets too cool. So they t- long, cool springs delay them, and hot summer temperatures will kill them. So this is a, this year may put a little bit of a squeeze on some of the cicadas because it's been so hot and it's been hot at night too. Right? Yeah, and, and because it, we actually had cool nights not too long before we had the atrociously hot days. Mm-hmm. Um, there is one locally uh, that, that seems to be more prevalent uh, as time goes on, uh, Neotobison superbus, which is a, a species that is not in any of the literature that I can find from the early 20th century as being in Kansas. And uh, a, a professor at K-State told me he didn't think it got any closer to here than, than Pratt. Well, it's here now. Uh, I heard it in, it was 2007 or 8 in, um, in Hutchinson. And I'd heard it in Oklahoma and Texas before, but I didn't expect it to be here. It's a very hot weather thing. And um, I heard it in uh, Wichita just the other day, you know, next to a parking lot by the at-home store. You know, (laughs) the the thing just was not bothered by the heat. Um, We do have out at Sand Hill State Park some of the the more prairie species. We have one called Megatobison dorsatus, which is a big tank of a cicada. And um, it likes low prairie vegetation, and uh, it doesn't mind the heat. It's not even up in great numbers yet. I have not heard one yet this year. 
And uh, we have a relative of it, um, Megatobison tremulus, which looks similar, sounds a little different. And that one I haven't actually heard in Hutchinson, but I've heard it at Sandhill State Park. It appears to prefer, uh, prefer sandy soils. And, um, and that's something you have to think about because the most evident form of a cicada is the adult. They're loud, they're big, they're very obvious. And, um, but that's just the end of the line. That's just the adult form. And before that, they molted several times underground. They started off as a, something about the size of an ant or a grain of rice. And they molted several times until the, the last brown uh, bug, you know, nymph stage that climbs up a tree and molts to become a cicada is called the fifth instar nymph. That is the fifth form of that thing. And all five of those forms have had to live underground and deal with soil and root systems and water. So that's another thing that determines environment, soil type. Mm -hmm. Can that cicada build its little underground kind of um, inside of a peanut-shaped nest, you know, from which it will feed on roots and grow and kill time? Um, So soil, um, you know, soil composition differs, uh, tree roots, things like that. So you've you've talked to me a little bit before. There's there's a difference. Uh, there's the periodical cicadas. Mm-hmm. Then those are the ones that you know you're the stories that they're underground for. Was it seventeen years? Seventeen years or, or thirteen years? Usually two two different cycles. And but we don't have. You said we don't have those here in this area. They're in other parts of the state, mm-hmm. but not in this uh, south central Kansas part, right? <laughs> Frustrating, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, no, I'm pretty sure we don't have them. Uh, in 2015, I was involved in a mapping project that's run. It's been run for a number of years and still run through the University of Connecticut. Uh, it's a long term project to map all the cicada broods. And I mapped this part of Kansas pretty meticulously, driving around with a computer in the car hooked up to a GPS puck and a temperature sensor, uh, kind of stitching the border back and forth. You know, you hear them here, so you drive west until you don't hear them, marking both the positive and the negative points. And then you go maybe north or south, and then go back across the border, back east, and when do you hear them again? And all of that data from myself and other volunteers goes into an aggregate map. And that map, unfortunately, we are not on. Uh, However, Lindsberg is. There's some around Coronado Heights. Okay. Um, There's some in the extreme uh, southeast corner of Wichita. Um, but no, unfortunately not here. And I don't know why. It could be soil composition. There's some evidence um, that it's related to the amount of rainfall, just not in any given year, of course, but historically. Mm-hmm. So when when I, you know, you made you made that comment earlier about the, the sound, the kind mm-hmm. of up and down sound of the cicada. And when I think when I think about cicadas, the, I remember falling asleep to that when I was a kid. That was kind of like the Kansas lullaby, right? <laughs> Gets I mean, in your head, doesn't it? Oh, and it, to me, when I was, you know, I was mad. My mom made me go to sleep before the sun was down, um, and there was still a little bit of daylight. But then when the sound, when the cicadas started making that sound, uh, I don't know, it kind of put me to sleep. So I, I, I kind of have a romantic feeling mm-hmm. associated with that. Also, seeing all the 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 little exoskeletons that are left behind. I was fascinated with those. Bug shells, we used to call them when we were, because we'd we'd arrange them in little armies. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, you take them, you collect them all over and play with them. But aside from that kind of romantic feeling, 
you're you you've been involved in that mapping projects. Um, what? Why? Why do we care about cicadas? They, they. I mean, I know, and we'll get to this in a little bit about some of the things that came out of this uh, this movie or the the show. Um, but do the cicadas? I mean, if the, if we see them, like you said, it kind of talks about rainfall in some areas. But if we see declining populations, or we see their they're moving to a different habitat. Do they kind of tell us things about our environment? As much as anything else, yes, I would suppose so. And I'll be very eager to see what the next, uh, you know, census of uh, our mapping project for Brood 4, that's the Kansas Brood, tells us uh, about any kind of movement there. But yeah, I mean, uh, we are doing things to them on a suburban level, you know, on a micro level in neighborhoods by mm -hmm. Uh, leaving single trees where there used to be woods and now the nymphs come up and they literally kind of trample over and damage each other. That's something we saw a lot uh, where this um, um, Attenborough thing was filmed in uh, Maryland. Happens here too. I've seen it here, not with periodical cicadas, but I've seen uh, it, 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 well, I've seen it in Kansas with periodicals, but I've seen it uh, here with uh, some annual cicadas that they they come up and there's one advantageous tree in a yard and you get seven or eight in one night one of them is going to crawl over another one and you know inflict a little bit of damage uh, but as to the bigger picture yeah i mean and why do we care about them why do we care about anything i, I think that goes to uh, uh, the idea that everything has a right to exist and um why do we care about them? I, I'm often asked, what function do they serve? Mm -hmm. Which always strikes me as a very Republican question. You know, what has this life form done to me? How does this life form affect our economy, our pocketbook? Well, uh, aside from just you know the diversity and the beauty of nature, cicadas put a tremendous amount of food into the environment uh, for birds, lizards, uh, that sort of thing. They are a huge, easy food source. They are flying popcorn. <laughs> so they, so a lot of things eat them. Mm -hmm. um, what do they eat? I mean, you talked about they live off of roots and uh, underground, but when, once they're in the adult form, what do they eat? Well, it's interesting. When I was a kid, I was told by teachers that they didn't eat anything, which turns out not to be true. They have a proboscis, which is a needle-like mouth that uh, will stick into a branch and drink fluid from the xylem layer of a tree, which is a very weak sugar water. Mm. And studies on some species of cicadas have shown that they have a lot of, of different kinds of gut bacteria that can then process that sugar water into other forms of food. So what initially looks like a very thin uh, not very nutritious form of food turns out to be something that the you know the source of something they convert into uh, something more valuable. But so that's what they they eat. They don't really do any uh, damage locally to anything. What they consume is minuscule. Mm -hmm. So what, I, before we get, I want to I want to talk about your experience with the, with the 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 mating game, um, but. We were talking a few days ago, uh, 
about this story that you have about, and it's you actually informed me that you have this story that's happened over and over again. You've you've been out recording cicadas before, and it's kind of a situation where you might be under a tree or in the bushes or something, and there's this guy with the re- <laughs> video camera and and uh, recording equipment, and it it looks odd. And then if somebody comes to investigate, they find out that you're. You're actually just you. You might be odd, but you're harmless. You're yeah. just recording cicadas. And nothing suspicious about a guy with a net at a rest stop at 2 a.m. Officer. Um, <laughs> no, I've, the only time I was really asked about that um, in any kind of really suspicious way was at a rest stop. I think it was, it was either in Missouri or Arkansas, and there was a a, a power station of some sort, uh, you know, near one end of the rest area. Mm-hmm. And uh, this probably wasn't long after um, 9-11, but they were wondering what I was doing out there in the middle of the night. But right. I've never actually had a serious uh, problem with law enforcement. I've even got a really kind of a fun story from um, Storyville. I mean, where would you want to have a story from? But Storyville, Storyville, Iowa. <laughs> um, I was up there mapping. And uh, this was for the Iowa brood, which is brood three. And this was part of the, the Connecticut you know, mapping project. So. Um, so I'm rolling into Storyville, and one of the first things I do is if I run into a cop, I will say, hey, I, I'm on this project. Uh, I want to see what's coming up in the trees of your town. And, you know, you have these parks, and do you have curfews? And if you do have curfews, is it okay if I'm out past them? And here's what I'm doing. Uh, I would carry a card for the project. And I did that in Storyville. And I went out into a park, and sure enough, there was a a mass emergence that night, tons and tons of cicadas coming up the trees. And the officer came around to watch. And uh, then he came or he left, and he came back with his family. Really? (laughs) That was fun. (laughs) Yeah. So you you kind of piqued an interest in in him to to want to see what was going on. Yeah, yeah. And and this is the kind of thing that uh, it, it would happen, although periodical cicadas come up at all hours, as we really saw in Maryland. But... Uh, they um, typically it's an evening thing. So a lot of people, unless they're really watching their trees or their parks, they're not noticing it. They just go out the next day and there are tons of those little amber bug shells. And then, you know, 10 days or so later, they're hearing the singing in the trees, Mm -hmm. but they may not actually uh, ever witness that spectacle of all of these things crawling up a tree trunk and, and all shedding at once. Your skins. Yeah, right. pretty much. I mean, it, it starts typically early in the evening and then continues till, um, you know, well after midnight. And um, it's, um, it, we throw around the word spectacular a lot and awesome, but I mean, it is an awe inspiring experience to see nature put on a show like that. It's, it's kind of the uh, the insect equivalent of the aurora borealis. It's you know here I'm really going to show you something cool for a few nights and then it'll be over. Especially when you're talking with the periodicals and they're just they're all doing this at about the same mm-hmm. time, right? Roughly the same time. Um, well, you told me a little bit of why rest stops are a good place because you said the trees are there, the grass is mowed generally, mm-hmm. and the nymphs are coming up out of the ground. Um, Correct. Uh, they're good because they're they're kind of uh, it's like a field of funnels, um, field of reverse funnels. The grass is mowed, and so the nymphs aren't coming up and molting on long blades of grass much because there aren't many, and they're going towards what they can see, uh, the trees. 
And because you can walk around in this and there's typically no poison ivy uh, and they're open all night, you know, you can walk around with a flashlight and do a count or just note the location or collect specimens and keep them until they are, you know, in their full adult form till the, the next morning when they've hardened and their, their colors darkened and know for sure what species lives there. And then, you know, do the same on down the road. Mm -hmm. And so you have data points on that map. But yeah, um, uh, cemeteries, uh, which aren't so good in the middle of the night, that does, those are not as accessible or legal. Um, <laughs> but rest areas, uh, commercial areas where you have permission to be. Uh, in Maryland on this project, we were using uh, trees in, in one case it was in a, a church where we had, we had permission to be on the church grounds. Uh, residence trees. Um, we were lucky in that our lodging uh, was was a series of tourist cabins, mm -hmm. and there were trees on the grounds, and so we literally didn't even have to drive uh, to get a lot of those uh, shots and observations. We could just walk across a field and set up the equipment and see what was going on. Well, let's so let's talk about the movie. So this this show is is on DVD and it's being streamed on uh, Discovery Plus, if I remember. Correct. It's not actually on the Discovery Channel that I know of uh, yet. It I I would hope it would be, but currently, yeah, it's on DVD and on streaming on Discovery Plus. And it's it narrated by David Attenborough, which if you, the name may not sound familiar to you, but if you've watched any nature show ever in your life, you've probably heard his voice and you'll remember it as soon as you hear this narration, because he's done a lot of these. But tell me, so the, the show's called The Mating Game, and it runs through a lot of different animals and insects and fish, talking about the way they mate, the drive to mate, and the things that they do. And that sound that we hear from the cicada is a, is a mating call, right? It is, yeah, and it's particular in, in each species. And there is a footnote there. There are two species in Kansas that are very much alike. It, I'm not even sure they're different species. We have um, Megatobison delbatus here. Further east in Kansas, we have Megatobison pronatalis. Um, by the time you get to Parsons, you're pretty much in pronatalis territory. They sound to me identical. I don't know if any really fine acoustic studies have been done to see if they're different things or not. Uh, but yeah, but the general rule is that they all sound different, and that's how the female knows um, what to respond to. Otherwise, you get hybrids, and the hybrids don't tend to, um, anytime you hybridize something, you know, you tend to lose a population. Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. in, in the movie, or the show did a great job of showing kind of the life cycle of, of a cicada, and as you told, showing this emergence and all of these cicadas, and even talked about how... Um, you know, because of deforesting and things like that, that they, they're climbing over each other and injuring or and fatal, fatally wounding uh, other cicadas. But can you tell me a little bit about how you became involved in, in this project and just in general about that experience? Because to me, that's kind of a big deal. I mean, it's, you're here and you're, but you get pegged to go work on this thing that now uh, was ultimately produced by the BBC uh, and is now on Discovery and will be seen uh, by, I think it's not a stretch to say, millions of people will will see this over time. So it feels like a big deal to me. I don't know if it feels like a big deal to you. Um, yes and no. I was really wrapped up in some of the stuff that we were seeing during the shoot, like this uh, 
this ridiculous and uh, highly damaging, horrific funneling of cicada nymphs, this demolition derby going up a tree. Uh, that was actually a little bit shocking even to me. And, and uh, oh, I should back up here. How did I get involved? Um, I'd worked with quite a few entomologists and people who dealt with cicadas in their fields. Uh, John Cooley uh, is, is uh, at the University of Connecticut, has dealt mainly with insect communication and pair bonding. And uh, he recommended me to the... Um, the producer for Silverback Films, which was doing this project for the BBC, uh, as uh, being able to help on it. Basically, a cicada wrangler, mm -hmm. somebody to, <laughs> to help them with the cicadas on site, to help them understand what they were doing, uh, their communication systems, physically handle them if necessary and all of that, and, and do a little bit of filming. As it turns out, I filmed uh, most of the making of feature that's on the DVD. Um, so uh, John recommended me, and uh, we were going to do this in 2020, and COVID happened, and the British crew couldn't even fly over here. Mm -hmm. So uh, we ended up doing it with a different brood, in because uh, there's a different ones every year, in 2021, and we were headquartered in Maryland. And uh, it took us about four weeks. We finished in a little bit under the, the time allotted. And uh, we were headquartered in Flintstone, Maryland, which was fun because they have Flintstones characters painted on the fire engines, and you know <laughs> they they really taken advantage of the name. And um, we did some side trips here and there. I, I did a lot of location scouting, going out on my own and finding places where the brood existed or before it began to emerge was likely to exist, places that would be scenic uh, and where the cicadas were likely to appear. And places where you know we had a need for, to show them uh, near development, and so I was on the phone with with uh, realtors and development people, calling from a, a subway that was located in a Love's truck stop um, because that was the only place we could get a good internet signal. We we had lousy internet in, <laughs> in Flintstone, so um, I was over uh, in um, Cumberland, Maryland. Um, calling realtors and finding places where we would have permission to film because that's that's a big thing you can't just you know go in and film they, they wanted to do this all by the book and have signed releases and everything mm -hmm. so um, so I did a lot of that and a lot of, of just you know messing directly with the cicadas and um, that was that was fun. I just kept thinking, man, I'm getting paid to be a nerd. This, <laughs> this, <laughs> That's the this, best thing, right? This is the best thing, yeah. Uh, not, not a lot of that pops up, really. Yeah. So when you were, when you were there filming, um, and like I said, I, I watched this uh, last night. Um, it really was remarkable, and you, you talked about kind of the, um, you know, just seeing this many come out of the ground. Um, Kind of walk us. You talked about how there's like, you know, five uh, moltings. They're underground, particularly on those periodicals. They're there 13 or 17 years. Mm -hmm. um, they come out. Um, talk about what happens. Then, then they molt this last time, and the last time they come out there in their final form. But, but they're very vulnerable for a while, right? They are. If if you've ever seen, uh, if you've lived around creeks very much, and you've seen crawdads that have just shed their skins, it's like that. It's like any arthropod that has shed its skin, a lobster, a crab, anything like that. There's a period of extraordinary vulnerability that follows that process. And in the case of a cicada, um, they molt at night, and they uh, 
go into what's called a tenoral form, and it's kind of semi-adult. There, uh, the adult form is there, but the skin is not really. Uh, it's a soft, squishy exoskeleton. It's very vulnerable, and so they typically would crawl on up the tree. Um, hang out in the crown of the tree for a few days until everything inside them matured and then they would begin calling and you know starting to pair bond what happens when we cut down forests and we build suburbia or small towns and we decide hey i'm going to leave that oak tree in the front yard that one's really pretty and i think i'll leave that maple in the back too um let's say you leave two or three trees in a yard that used to have 20. It had 20 17 years ago mm-hmm. when the eggs fell out of those trees. I'll get to egg laying in a minute. When the eggs fell out of those trees and the young burrowed in, they had a lot of territory. They had a lot of potential vertical surfaces to come up in 17 years, except they don't because you came along and <laughs> you built a house. And changed that. And changed that. So uh, they come up and they look for, they can see a little bit, they look for, uh, a nice tall vertical form to go up. Sometimes it's a phone pole. Usually it's a tree. Often it's the side of a house. In the making of, there's a nice little shot I got of the side of a church that's just covered with them. <laughs> and um, so they go up and they have very, very sharp claws and they walk over each other, not in an intentionally destructive manner, but just because that bump up ahead up the tree that they have to crawl over is another cicada. They don't know or mm-hmm. care. They they just crawl through it. They're and just trying to get where they're going. They're trying to get where they're going. They have a little simple program, which is to go up and maybe find a little bit of an incline. And the the shell splits. There's kind of a perf there. And they, they squeeze out of it and their wing pouches come out and the wings have to hang down pretty much vertically and dry or they'll be deformed, uh, which is why, you know, they, they don't come up on short blades of grass mm-hmm. or right at the base of a tree. So they're looking for these ideal spots, but you have a jillion more of them looking for the ideal spots than you should have on one tree. And it leads to chaos. And it does, it kind of just put, and in the video does a great job of showing that just all these cicadas trying to get up one tree because that's what's available. Mm-hmm. Um, so so they they do that. And then you said after the, after they do this final molting and everything, they're in full adult form. Uh, you said about 10 days after they emerge from the ground is when you'll start hearing that sound. That yeah, it depends call. on the species, six to 10 days, something okay. like that. Yeah, they start to call. You could even hear them around Hutchinson starting to call about a week, week and a half ago. Uh, you could hear them and they almost sound like they're clearing their throats, which they're not doing. They The males have these organs called timbles that are vibratory organs just right about where the wing joins the body. Mm-hmm. And in the case of all of the ones in Hutchinson, they're, they're not visible. They're under the exoskeleton. In the case of periodical cicadas, they're actually visible. You can move the wing and you can actually see the the timble. The timble looks for all the world like the baleen of a whale. You know, it's, it's a structure with a lot of kind of cross okay. structures in it. And um, anyway, they make a, a tone, they make a noise, and then the abdomen of the male moves to change that noise. So instead of just a buzz, you get and if you actually are looking at them while they're singing, you can see that motion. Mm-hmm. Their, their tail moves, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah the, the abdomen. And the abdomen is basically a resonance chamber in the male. And okay. in the, the female, they're full of eggs. 
and uh, which means females are much more nutritious for things to eat than males are. Uh, it's been noted that birds will often drop a male cicada when it squawks. They've picked it off a tree, uh-huh. and they're. I saw this the other day outside Walgreens, and there's a there's a bird flying with a cicada. The cicada goes off doing its little car alarm sound, <laughs> and um, the bird drops it, and they go their separate ways. Well, um, uh, John Cooley had suggested, well, birds learn. The bird knows that that thing, it's a male. It's making a sound, so it's a male, so it's full of air. It's just a, a crunchy little nothing. It's in popcorn. Terms of, yeah, exactly. In terms of nutrition, there's not much there. Grab a female. It doesn't make any sound. It's full of eggs. It's okay. full, full of protein. So the so the birds learn. They're pretty pretty quick learners on that. It, it would seem that that is the case. Yes. So, how does the mating process work? I mean, they're they're in the trees. The male calls. The female comes to the male to the call. Locally, that's pretty much what happens. Uh, with periodicals, the female um, periodicals are more complex. Periodicals have a three stage call. The male has kind of a hey, I'm here call. Uh-huh. And uh, the female will click her wings. She has no timbles, but she can click her wings. She will click her wings in response to that. The male uh, tries to find her, changes to a second call, uh, does find her, changes to a third call as he is stroking her. You can actually see some of that vibratory stroking in that video. And, uh, And they mate. That's much more complex, I think, than what happens locally. But there are always surprises, aren't there? Yeah. Um, Locally, it appears that what they pretty much do is the male sings and the female flies to the male. That being said, out at Sandhills a few years ago with Megatobison dorsatus, I saw what I would call the berry white call, which was a uh, this kind of <laughs> low and slow. Like you know, the, the the male the, the female flies up to the male, they can see each other, and the male just goes into a lower, slower call and they mate, and I don't know why. And this is something, science is this way, you want to observe this a bunch of times Mm -hmm. before you're sure that it's not a fluke. Yeah, because it may just be an aberration. Exactly, exactly, and he could have been responding to something else. For all I know, he was going low and slow with that call because he thought there was a predator nearby as well. So, you know, but it looked to me like this was a, um, you know, more of a, a secondary call, and, you know, and that's something where I would would talk to, you know, one of the the real cicada experts on and say, hey, have you seen this behavior in anything related to this animal? Yeah. And um, so locally, they pretty much do that. And right now, out at Sandhills State Park on the south end, in the locust trees, you can hear uh, Neotobison lyrison, which is very prevalent there, but not in town for whatever reason. Huh. Probably the host trees. Probably it's just attracted locally to those locust trees. All over town now we have uh, Neotobison prenosis and Megatobison delbatus. Soon we will have Megatobison dorsatus uh, uh, hanging out through the city, and uh, it tends to go to short uh, ornamental trees. It'll go to, for example, Rose of Sharon. It's very okay. fond of those. I've not heard Megatobison tremulus in town. Doesn't mean it's not here. We have one that's not that closely related to the others still hanging around, uh, and it's uh, Deceroprocta vitropinus, and it makes a little ticking sound. And it's a very small cicada. Sandhills has lots of them. 
And I have to confess, I didn't realize that's what I was hearing for years until I saw them in the wild and then was able to go back into the city and say, oh, yeah, they're on my block, too. They're coming from, you know, the neighbor's garden. And I went over there and sure enough was able to find them. But it's a case of not realizing the sound was coming from something, uh, you know, in your own town until I'd seen it elsewhere and come back and realized, oh, those live here, too. It, it's interesting as you're talking about that, I, I, it hit me that hearing cicadas is a lot different for you than it is for me. Like when I, when I hear them, it's just a very general, oh, there are cicadas, but you're hearing, uh, you're hearing the, the nuance and all of that. When you hear cicadas, you're probably going right to what the species is. You're thinking, oh, I, did, I haven't heard that one before, right? It's, like, it's a lot, there's a lot more going on in your head when you hear cicadas than, I'm just like, oh, that's nice. It reminds me of when I was nine. You're hearing a lot, you're hearing a lot more. Yeah, I can be uh, fun or annoying on trips that, you know, a bunch of us are stopping somewhere and I'm like, hey, there's a, you know, there's something singing from on the side of that village inn sign. I need to get a closer shot of that and see what it is. That happens a lot. Patsy, bless her heart, used to put up with a lot of, of that. She was pretty good about it you 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 both would go on these kind of she would she was a good sport that way right she would go with you on some of these trips and some of these excursions she was and and sharon scott sharon uh, there's a story oh god <laughs> i hope she's not listening to this um sharon uh, when we first encountered uh periodical cicadas we went down to monticello arkansas to kind of meet the northward sweep of um i think it was brood 19 that was coming up and um so I had not experienced them before. I'd read about them. And our local cicadas are skittish. You know, you reach towards one and it goes, ah, you know, and yeah. it flies away. It makes away. that noise like, <laughs> Exactly. Right? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's not happy in it, in it. They have an avoidance instinct. Well, periodical cicadas really don't. We didn't know that, though. So Sharon is a Tai Chi instructor, and we're in the woods uh, in, near Monticello, and she is, we've spotted a periodical cicada down low on a branch, and she's moving so, so slowly. She is time-lapse moving up to picking <laughs> that thing up, and she does it successfully, and we're, we're thrilled, and I'm so proud of her. And, and then, of course, we find out that you can do that all the time. You can just pick them like berries. And, and that, <laughs> that leads to an explanation of why there are so many of them, or at least a benefit of why there are so many of uh, periodical cicadas at, at a time. It's a survival strategy called predator satiation. When there are a million of you, well, think of the Borg, you know, uh -huh. on Star Trek. Um, when there are uh, a million of you per per acre, which is actually a fairly reliable figure in a in a brood of periodical cicadas, all of the predators can eat their fill, and it will not impact the the population much. All of the birds, the snakes, the lizards, dogs and cats, you know, ducks, whatever else, fish when they fall in the water, they could all eat cicadas till they are sick of them, but it won't make a difference. You know, it just, unless there's, they're like at the edge of their range and they're patchy or something, it yeah. won't really make a difference. And um, therefore, they didn't really need to evolve avoidance. It doesn't matter. Interesting. So they work as a group and, and, and say, and, and there's just, like you said, there's a million of them. So enough of them will make it with that kind of volume. I wouldn't quite say they work as a group because that implies kind of a hive mind thing, but it's more the fact that if you're an individual cicada, um, there are so many others around you 
that your chances of being picked off by a predator are are minimal. Mm -hmm. So way, way back in the revolution, they really didn't need to come up with avoidance. Okay. You know, they they have been so numerous that it doesn't really serve them to be flighty. Um, but like the annual cicadas here. Are, yeah, they're much more sparse. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there might be a few per block, you okay. know, per, per city block here. And, uh, and less, you know, as, as the range of each species, you know, decreases. And that's something that's fun about even Reno County. We have, by my count, eight species in Reno County. There's probably more. There's some little grassland cicadas that I cannot hear all that well. Mm -hmm. It's that thing of, you know, hearing and age. If something is, is making a sound high enough, I as an adult male may not hear it. I should probably take an 11-year-old with me, but um, there's one called Bimaria venosa that I filmed. Uh, it came from elsewhere, but I was filming it and watching all the motions that indicate to me that it was making a sound. The VU meter's moving. It's making a sound, and I can't hear it. Uh. So um, there may be more than eight here, but there are at least eight, and they're different enough in their environments that you can go from you know out in the sand hills to inside Hutchinson and back and forth, and pick up and lose species. Interesting. So we, we were well. I I want to get back to egg laying because I want to know how that process mm -hmm. goes. But I, I feel like I want to make sure and explain mm -hmm. something. Take a an aside here, real quick. Talk to me about the broods. There, there. You said that there are how many broods are there in the country of these periodical cicadas and. It, Regionally, each brood has a name. How, how is that determined? Uh, a long time ago, uh, I think it was early 20th century, might have been late 19th, an entomologist named, I think his name was Marlet, came up with a brood numbering system. Okay. And a brood is a group that comes up in a geographic area in a given year and can be counted on to reemerge in either 13 or 17 years. They tend to abut each other such that if you put all the broods together in a map, um, you get pretty much the eastern half of the United States. How did they evolve? Well, um, the, the latest theory I heard on that, and this was a, actually a talk I filmed from John Cooley, was, you know, it's very possible that back after the end of the last ice age, you know, you have very, very uneven temperatures, uneven weather. And let's say something was going to come up um, uh, you had a, a big patch of them that was coming up every 17 years. Well, across part of the range, something went wonky with the trees. They leafed out twice a year for a few years. So whatever the cicadas counting uh, goes off, it's got two years as one year. And you end up with something coming up early. Mm. So two broods ends up being one brood. You still have 17-year cicadas, but one of them comes up you know, in 2023, whereas the other one, you know, comes up in 2026 or 2027 okay. or whatever. Um, and uh, that's just, a, I think, an educated guess at this point as to, to how that happened. And, yeah, they do have regional names. We have the Kansan brood here mm -hmm. in Kansas, brood four, Iowa, Iowan brood, brood three. Um, <clears throat> the great southern brood, brood 19, will be the next thing that will touch Kansas, and that will be two years from now. In 2024, okay, we'll have those, and uh, they barely get into Kansas. Um, I was mapping those in what was it, 2011, and um, is that right? Yeah, and they were. Uh, that's a 13-year brood. They were right at uh, 
north of Pittsburgh at okay. um, Frontenac. Frontenac, okay. Uh, they weren't in Pittsburgh and they weren't in Joplin, but they were in Frontenac. And um, they were kind of along the Oklahoma-Arkansas border and the Missouri-Kansas border, not very much to the west of it. So it'll be kind of fun to get back to those. That effort was interrupted by the Joplin tornado. Oh, yes. So suddenly I, I'd been staying in Joplin with my mom, uh, and uh, she was injured. Uh, we were in the damage area, and we, there was a curfew, and I couldn't get out and mm. do stuff. Plus, I had her medical condition to see, too. So so I'll be kind of eager to take that back up again. Get back onto that. Yeah. So we talked about the calling and then how that comes together. So then what is the egg laying process? The egg laying process is as the female has kind of a sword. She has an ovipositor that, that hinges out of her abdomen and it will gouge into tree branches or bark with the species. It kind of depends on what. Sometimes they'll lay eggs in phone poles or fence posts. It depends on if they want to lay them in live or dead wood. Again, that varies by the species, but she will um, cut little gouges into these, and then the eggs exude down that, teeny tiny little things, and she'll put you know, five or six of them uh, into a little slit, and sometimes that's it. Sometimes they're just there, and they get enough moisture from the tree to not dry out. Other times, she, uh, other species, they'll cover them over with, with some sort of a fluid that dries. Uh, but the basic process is the same. It's an ovipositor deposit. How, how many eggs uh, get laid in a, in a season or in a lifespan? From one cicada, I, I don't really know. I, I think I've heard the figure 500 um, from, you know, I th think that's from a periodical cicada. Yeah, I've never really looked into that. But, but, the, the, but they outproduce, I mean, they, they lay... They, they outproduce their population. Yes. Uh, however, you know, the eggs are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the young, when they hatch out, either a few weeks later or sometimes the next year, um, they fall to the ground. I did get to see some this year, uh, and they're tiny little things. I actually put them under a microscope. Uh, they fall to the ground. They burrow in, and they're food for lots of stuff, too. Mm -hmm. uh, they're food for lots of underground-dwelling animals. Moles just love them. As a matter of fact, one way you can tell that an emergence is about to start in the spring or early summer is if you start seeing the mole trails underground near the roots of a tree, they are going along and getting the cicada nymphs that are living off the roots of that tree. Really? So, And of course, they don't get them all. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of those little suckers have to die to, for there not to be an absolute population explosion uh, every year of, of just the normal annual cicadas. So how long, I think you said this, but I want to make sure I catch this. How, how long from egg laying to uh, larva form? Depends on the species. Okay. Uh, in, in periodical cicadas, a few weeks. In some annual cicadas, going back to a 1928 paper from, from Beamer at the University of Kansas, um, the next year. Okay. Um, so now how they survive the winter, I don't know. Which brings up another thing. Uh, they will, the nymphs often live well above the frost line. Mm -hmm. So how they're not freezing, I don't know. I don't think anybody does. So when they burrow on the ground, they're not getting down below where the ground freezes. Correct. They are yeah, not always. Uh, uh, again, going back to John Cooley, he mentioned that they're finding them, you know, within eight inches of the ground in areas where code requires that you go down, you know, 40 inches or so. Mm -hmm. and 
Connecticut to uh, avoid a freeze. So they must have some ability to withstand that. So here here where we have mostly annual cicadas is that is that larval form and the transition to a nymph form about a year? We don't know. Uh, I don't think anyone's has really researched that. Beamer did a little bit with the Maria Venosa in captivity. It would be a challenge to do that because when you think about it, if you're going to do it in nature, if you're not going to build a humongous, you know, um, uh, terrarium sort of, you know, thing inside, um, the movie Silent Running comes to mind with the artificial forest. If you're not going to do that, if you're going to use nature to hold this experiment, you'd pretty much have to kill everything that was already there uh, and then let the the nymphs, you know, the first instar nymphs, the ones that just hatched, rain down and, and burrow in and start to develop because otherwise you would never tell them apart from the ones that were already there. And the thing is, is there's always a constant supply of, yeah. of larva dropping into the ground. Exactly. With okay. annual cicadas, the reason they're, they're called that is that they're not on that predator satiation 13 or 17 year cycle. Some of them are coming up every year now. They will have very lean years and they'll have very populous years. Mm-hmm. Right now at Sand Hills, uh, we are swimming in Neotobison Lyricin. It's not that way every year. And we're more or less at the western edge of their range, which could be the reason. It, it could be that if we were 100 miles more to the southeast, uh, that it would be a much more even population. Um, I don't know. Um, and older reports show things um, you know, in parts of Kansas where they're not registering anymore. You know, agricultural activity, um, you know, um, other man-made, you know, other... Uh, uh, man-made activities, uh, effects on the environment could be affecting that. But, uh, but yeah, they're called annuals because some of them come up every year. And there are some out in Colorado that are kind of semi-periodical. There's one called Platypedia putnami that the, um, the Colorado State Entomologist cued me in a few years ago. I think it was um, 2013 said, you know, get out here. There's this enormous batch of them coming up near Fort Collins. And I got out there and shot them and they were everywhere. They didn't come back the next year or the next year or the next year. He thought they were on a four-year cycle. And um, the a neat thing about science is he was wrong and nobody ridiculed him for it. You know, that's, <laughs> that's something I love about this hobby. Uh, as I'm sure people in geology or, you know, any kind of a science hobby experience, you were, for the most part, dealing with very rational people mm-hmm. and people that do not expect to have all the answers. They properly understand what a hypothesis is, what a theory is, and that you can be wrong. And that being wrong is part of the great learning process. Being wrong is not, oh, gosh, we want to disregard all information from your agency again. And uh, Yeah, that's an interesting point because in science, being wrong is not fatal. Exactly. Right? Being wrong is actually... Uh, saying, okay, now I know which parts to carry forward and I know which parts don't belong in future experiments. And the problem with the general public not understanding and respecting that or certain certain, uh, fragments of them is that you hit something like COVID and you have to understand that the discovery of it and the methods of dealing with it are science and there are going to be suppositions that do not turn out to be correct. 
And uh, that doesn't mean that the people who made those suppositions are incompetent or had some sort of an agenda. It just means that it's a learning process. And in, in something like cicadas, people, like you gave that example from Colorado, he, he probably wasn't uh, horribly stricken with the idea that these didn't come up like he thought. He was probably fascinated by that. Mm -hmm and redoubled his efforts to, to continue that research. Yeah, I think right? he was probably disappointed that his hunch wasn't right. But nobody, and, and you know, I was watching the reaction to that, nobody pointed any fingers or anything and said, oh, you know, you were, you were wrong. It was like, huh, well, that didn't work. Something else will. Yeah, you just keep trying it. Yeah. Well, tell, tell me, uh, back on the movie, um, you're out there in Maryland. You, you said it was a great experience. And I, uh, can you talk a little bit about just that experience in general. You told me a little bit about um, the recording process, and I know some things you can't talk about because they're somewhat proprietary, um, but just the overall experience of being, and it sounds like you get calls just kind of randomly like, hey, Greg, we have some cicadas. Come help us. I think that's an interesting thing, too, that you just get that. But talk a little bit about this, this process of going out and being on location, and your job is to, like, what? Do this thing that you already like doing, but you get to do it with other people who also like doing it. Yeah, and, and who are fascinated, fascinated with it and who are experienced with nature photography. And this crew were all experienced with dropping into a part of the world they knew very little about and quickly adapting and uh, working with the locals and, I mean, Britain to America, not that big a, a deal, but some of these people had been all over the world. Mm -hmm. We were, I was listening in on stories they were telling about, you know, uh, horrific experiences with tree sloths, you know, watching <laughs> them fall out of trees onto tarmacs and stuff. Uh, but uh, it, it was a, a really cool experience in that there was a lot of professionalism and it was very mutually supportive. You know, if people had a, a better idea of how to get a shot or how to um, how to adapt to a circumstance we hadn't anticipated, be it rain or terrain that wasn't what we were told it was going to be, um, uh, everyone was just so mutually supportive on it. It was it was a just a wonderful work ethic um, that they had, and the last night. Um, that we were there, uh, one of the crew members uh, wanted to go to a, a honky-tonk American bar. Uh -huh. And I thought that was funny, but not entirely unexpected, like you might want to go to a pub. Yeah, I would and, love, uh, I would want to go to a British pub if that's where I was, right? And we, we went upstairs to this little bar down the street and uh, just checked stuff off her list. And it was all there. It was like, a, without her interfering with it, would there be a song on the jukebox by Willie Nelson playing? <laughs> you know, where there'd be one by Waylon Jennings, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the, uh, the proprietor uh, was very nice. And people in this town were kind of treating us like minor celebs at this point. Mm -hmm. the, the proprietor brought over a, a big a basket of beer and ice, you know, all oh, type yeah. of stuff. And, um, one of the crew picked it up. It picked up a can and said, "Look, it's it's beer in a can," <laughs> you know, like which I guess you know is is not well because in England norm. it's probably mostly uh, draft beer. Right? I guess yeah. I, I guess you you get, you get a pint in a mug or something. So yeah, oh, that's funny. Um, but it, it was fun watching them, um, you know, uh, deal with the locals and uh, and it generally very very well. Everything went swimmingly. There were people. Um, there were two neighbors, in fact, right next to the property we were staying on. 
that had trees that were, we were able to utilize in the production. And they were so nice, uh, and they were really getting into the, it to themselves. As a matter of fact, one of them phoned me last fall and said, you know, hey, is it? You know, I, I want to see it. Is it out yet? And at that point, it wasn't. You had to uh, – it was on BBC, but it wasn't on BBC America, and it wasn't on Discovery Plus yet. Okay. Uh, so I was able to update him later as to how he could see it. Um, but, yeah, it was just a wonderful chemistry. Um, I've never worked with a, a crew like that. Was that now? You've done a lot of the filming and recording before, but that, was that your first time working with a production company? Oh yeah, and okay. and I the only uh, filming that I did that got into this production was in the making of. Okay, they were using I mean, this is far above my pay grade. They were using eight K equipment and uh, a lot of um, without going into too much detail here because I think I can say this because you can see it in the making of bit on the video, a uh, little kind of robot arm camera so that. We are not trampling up to the tree, uh, you know, yeah. with, with cameras and squatting down. This thing is moving very, very precisely and slowly and, you know, carrying a, a lens that looks like a microscope lens on the end of a tube and maneuvering it up right next to the nymph. So they are, you know, huge in comparison. And plus this thing had fantastic depth of field. Mm -hmm. And we were setting um, tracks around trees for um, um time-lapse photography so you know the camera would move very very slowly along a track and just take a taking picture a photo, yeah and then you could kind of go from uh night to day to night or uh film a single insect uh molting from a very slightly different angle you know as it comes out and all of its and, and there's a segment in here where it shows uh, cicada molting and it's remarkable because mm -hmm. you can see the skin pull away uh and you can see the air come into the into the shell, um, and I, I thought that was amazing camera work to see that. I think I think I know that sequence. Keith Brust did that. He's actually an American photographer okay. uh, living in Arizona, and um, you know I I remember watching that. That was just wonderful. He was using. Uh, I just realized I can't tell you what he was using on that. But yes, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, but it was a really good camera. It was yeah, well, yeah. A lot of this stuff wasn't even they weren't even anything that we would conventionally think of as cameras. Yeah, it was it was equipment that was that had lenses and sensors, and there its resemblance to a traditional camera ceased. Yes, uh, but yeah, that was an enormous amount of fun to watch and. A wonderful crew to work with and just the, the constant realization that like i'm doing nerdy things and getting a paycheck for it <laughs> so that, that that had to be a that, i mean in your mind that had to be something you're, you you were just kind of floored by right oh yeah and, i mean just to think okay yeah i'm doing this and getting paid yeah that's kind of amazing well it, and i want to i want to touch on this a little bit because that I mean, lest we think that the only nerdy thing about you is cicadas, um, <laughs> don't want to leave people thinking that's the extent of it. You told me that when the filming's done and you've, you've done your job and you've got your paychecks for being nerdy, you then use the opportunity of being somewhere else to do another somewhat nerdy thing. And I don't know if you're willing to talk oh, about sure, that yeah. or not. Well, I mean, being on a trip, being paid to be on a trip somewhere is a little bit like having a booster rocket. Something has gotten you from point A to point B. And as long as you're at point B, if point C isn't too far away, you might as well do that before going back to point A. And that's what I did. I hit some uh, East Coast museums, the American Museum of Natural History, uh, the Berkshire Museum at Pittsfield, Massachusetts, the uh, Ecotarium 
uh, at uh, uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. And um, they have exhibits of, of old dinosaur um, statues, archaic, now long known to be inaccurate statues, but the kind of images of dinosaurs that we grew up with you know, in, the, in the 60s and even the 70s, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of that stuff is in storage. And uh, ordinarily, uh, paleontologists and archive people are busy giving uh, school tours and things like that. Well, with COVID, they were not. And so I was uh, able to take advantage of that. And I was extended gracious invitations to go view things that were in storage, um, you know, provided that I, um, you know, had my documentation on, on vaccines and mm -hmm. uh, wore masks and all that. And uh, so that was fun. I got to see a lot of nerdy dinosaur stuff and look at some archives too. Mm -hmm. um, and photo I stopped at DC at the Smithsonian, was able to uh, look at some archived material. And uh, so that was a, a lot of fun, really. So, oh, yeah, yeah. I, can, I can imagine. And then you, um, I know, I, well, we know that you have the big dinosaur, the bront I, brontosaurus, I think. It's the old Sinclair. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the guy in the Hutchinson parades with a dinosaur on the truck. That's yep. me, yeah. <laughs> I, I'd like to be remembered that way. I'd like for kids on some sort of a, um, you know, whatever passes for Facebook in the year 2050, you know, to be talking about that local uh, eccentric that had the dinosaur on the back of the truck. They won't, that'll be, at that point, they'll be driving down the street if there are streets with hologram things, you know, it'll be. Yeah. But yeah, they'll be like, remember that when that dude did that old school thing? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's fun to research the origins of those, the makers of them. I did a little bit of that too. Mm -hmm. I stopped in uh, Danbury, Massachusetts, uh, no, Dan Danbury, Connecticut, which used to have the great Danbury State Fair. It was an enormous private state fair that ceased existence in the early 1980s, but had been going for over 100 years. And uh, that uh, fair was just replete with fiberglass animals, hundreds of them. The, the guy who ran it would buy them from amusement parks that were going under. He would buy them brand new. He'd buy them from fast food places that were getting rid of them and repurpose them. It was this weird wonderland of giant fiberglass beings. And when it went out of business in the uh, early 80s, those got sold uh, elsewhere. And one of them is the one I use in the Hutchinson Parade. Um, but the, um, uh, there were some records there in Danbury uh, to look at and some old photographs in their little museum. So that was another little trip out of the way. How interesting. Uh, now you've been back here now. Are you still recording cicadas now? I mean, you talked about going out and hearing what's out at Sand Hills. But... A little bit. I had another nerdy project uh, that I can't quite talk about yet earlier this summer. Uh, and I that, that took up most of May and June. Okay. And... Uh, but I uh, have been looking around trying to get a sense of what's out there now. And um, there are so many more people involved in it now, which is great. There are networks like on Facebook, for example, for people to post recordings and photographs and say, what's this thing? Or the more advanced version being, um, I saw this thing that exhibited an odd coloration. Is it a subspecies or a color more for what? And um, you know, there are entomologists that will answer these questions sometimes, and other times it's just advanced amateurs saying, well, uh, I don't know what that is, but you might check the following three research papers that are available online. So uh, there are networks like that. Uh, locally, 
Yeah, I, uh, I haven't been looking around too much yet this year, but I'll be uh, back on it just the last week or so, a trip to Wichita and a trip to Sand Hills. I've looked to see what's around here. I really need to keep up because a friend of mine in um, Oklahoma actually published a paper. It mm. took him three years to do it, but um, he came from a complete amateur perspective. He'd never really observed cicadas much, and uh, he just launched into it with gusto and several years later cranked out a paper wow. on the cicadas of Oklahoma. And he calls every year and says, hey, you've got to get down here to the panhandle. There's a thing. You know, there's a thing we haven't <laughs> seen before. Or, you know, my friend from Connecticut will call and say, oh, there's, a, there's, some, there's periodicals popping up where they shouldn't be. You know, can you go check them out? The last time it was in Labette, Kansas, a few years ago, there was a teeny tiny little, I don't know what to call it, a mini brood, just a little bubble of a cicada population that was disconnected from everything else. And I'll let the experts figure out what that is. I just went there and recorded its boundaries and took pictures, and I'll let them eventually figure out what that was part and, of. And try to determine how that happened. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They have a lot more data than I do on that. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and talking with me a little bit. I, 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 I know that first when we talked, you said, well, nobody wants to hear about that. I'm convinced everybody's going <laughs> to love this. Um, but maybe that means I'm just a nerd, too. But, I don't know. I watch people's <laughs> eyes glaze over when I start talking Latin. So. <laughs> well, the Latin might do it. But you, but the, just the, the whole life cycle and the study of it, I, just, I'm, I think it's fascinating. And I, I, I appreciate you taking time to come share that with everyone. Well, I hope more people get into whatever they're passionate as, is. I mean, whether it's driving down I-70 and seeing the road cuts and wanting to know which geological layers are you're seeing or uh, – helping monarch butterflies or whatever. I hope people really uh, understand that they can make a contribution to whatever field they're interested in. That's a very, very good point. Thank you for saying that. Well, thank you for having me. Yep. Thanks, Greg. I'd like to thank a few of the people who have helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son Mitchell Probst wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast in Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Salt City Sound Production.